0: Welcome back to the ADMS podcast. I'm Natalie Campbell, and today we're revisiting a talk from the 2022 ADMS Symposium titled Care and Automation, Experiences, Tensions, and Possibilities. In this talk, ADMS researchers Jacinth floor Deborah Lupton, Georgia Van Torn, Ash Watson and Vaughan Wozniak-O'Connor are joined by Dr David Russel and Jess Tran from RMIT University and Associate Professor Emma Kirby from the University of New South Wales exploring understandings of socio-materialities of care as it is conceptualised, carried out, experienced and problematized through emerging automated technologies.
1: This is a presentation of about a project that I'm working on with Ash Watson and Vaughn Wozniak O'Connor, who work with me um, at USW Sydney in our little Centre of Excellence team there. And um, I'm given the title here, Sensory Engagements with Lively Data, Understanding the More Than Human World With and Through Nature and Art. And I'm going to be talking about a specific project that we're actually right in the middle of. We're in the early stages of doing our empirical research for it. So I'm basically going to talk about this work in progress um, and some of the things we've been, uh, some of the approaches that we've been taking. So it's really timely actually to be talking about how, how humans interact with more than human worlds, particularly given the terrible revelations from Yesterday's report that was released by our Minister for the Environment, Tanya Plibersek, called Australia's State of the Environment 2021, which the former government sat on and would release, basically, we all suspect because of the awful things it had to say about just what is happening with um, our environment here in Australia and in terms of species being lost um, and all the other uh, really detrimental effects that humans have had um, on our environment here in Australia but what I was pleased to see when I was reading through the report I haven't managed to read through every single part of it but particularly in the opening sections um, the scientists who wrote the report who were commissioned to write the report at all steps along the way are really emphasizing Indigenous perspectives on understanding um, the importance of country. Um, and the relationships that we as humans have with the natural environment and other living things. So this, this this is actually from the Ngunnawal Nation, this quote here, and as I mentioned, I'm in Ngunnawal country right now, so it really speaks a lot to me. Um, I've got an image there that I took about, fabulous exhibition, again, here in Canberra at the National Museum called Connection, where you basically walk into a room um, with huge screens with digitized representations of indigenous artwork from all around the country. Um, videos showing uh, indigenous people engaging in their art making practices in their country related practices, um, talking about their relationship to country. So I really recommend it if you do visit Canberra to go and have a look at this. But it's it's also really relevant to what I'm talking about today, because we are talking about making art that will help us as humans connect more closely to planetary health Um, and this is another section from this report on the Australia and the environment and where we are now and I noted this as well that there's strong emphasis that we are all stewards of our environment we all play an important role protecting restoring our environment so this is all about care it's all about care for country uh, for the landscape for living creatures and non-living things in our worlds um, and I, uh, again, I like to see the privileging of the knowledges that Indigenous people can can share with us, and make us more wise about these practices. But also the role of community groups, individuals, as well as you know experts like scientists and investors, industries, and businesses. And would be great if industries and businesses were a bit more careful about our environment and governments, for that matter. So um, our project is called Creative Approaches to Health Information Ecologies, and the objectives are main objectives to expand the notion of health information beyond that of digital data and to sensitize people to their inter-embodied relationships and roles within planetary health ecologies and one way you can do that that sensitization or is through art and here's another image i took when i was visiting that exhibition i was just talking about connection uh which which is very much art-led in terms of making those connections uh, between people and country um, when you go into this huge room that has all these screens with the artworks and, uh, and videos of country uh, it's a really immersive experience there's there's lots of sound there's images on the floor that children love to run around and play on so it's all very interactive there's apparently there's um, uh, smells that it conveyed. that I had my mask on so <laughs> that blocked out that, that part of it but it's a very multi-sensory experience um, and our conceptual approach is very similar. It's more than human, and it's also more than digital. Even though we're working within a center that's very much about automated decision-making and other emerging digital technologies, we want to really, really show not only how we can go beyond just focusing on those technologies, but also showing how those technologies can help us become more attuned to the environment. So it's a sort of a two-way engagement that we're looking for in our, in our approach in this project. Now I won't go through every single one of these questions because there are quite a few of them, but um, these are re- the research questions that seek to achieve our aims. So we're very much interested in this notion of health information slash health data, but really expanding that um, out from digital data, which there's been a lot of emphasis on recently in medicine and healthcare. The idea, and even even sort of um, applied sort of person-led self-tracking. Um, Initiatives which um, you know have been emphasised in the way of people learning more about themselves, about their health, about their fitness and illness states. But we want to sort of go beyond that. We want to acknowledge that yes, they, those practices are very and those devices are really important ways of people learning about their bodies and their states of health and illness and well-being. But we want to to look at the connections um, between the natural world and the digital world and sort of go uh, in our sort of emphasis on more than digital, more than human. So we're interested about marks left on people's bodies, marks left on the environment that people may leave on other living things or on non-living things. Um, We see those marks as a form of health data. Um, What do people observe from walking through place and space through time um, that can help them learn more about themselves, but also about the health of the planet? how how can we as um, researchers help to attune people to these connections Um, and this gets us to the idea of of art making which is something that's a really crucial part of this project so there's various stages of this project creative approaches to health information ecologies Um, And we're working with a fabulous community partner called Health Consumers New South Wales. And as that term suggests, they're very much into promoting the rights um, and expertise of of health consumers, basically lay people, patients, people out in the community who aren't healthcare workers but are the consumers of healthcare. Um, And they have they've been really fabulous and keen to work with us on this. Quite sort of out of the box approach to research, which is great. So, we've been working with them on um, in an advisory capacity. They've been advising us on research design. Um, we've just finished a set of workshops where we've had people that Health Consumers New South Wales have recruited for us to develop ideas that are then going to feed into artwork creation that our team will be working on. We're, we're getting close to that stage of, of the project. Um, where we'll be drawing on some of the ideas that came out of the workshops. Then we'll be doing, we'll be making artworks and then we'll be calling back our partner, Health Consumers New South Wales, to um, offer engagement with our prototypes of art and just see how they respond to them, and what suggestions they might have. And then we'll be able to lead that into final public art exhibitions that will be open to the greater public. Um, as well of course academic publications and and an open access report. So there's two basic activities that we've worked with on this first round of workshops and one is health information ecology mapping which is a bit like body mapping but we're basically getting people to centre their bodies within a hand-drawn map and then gave them a series of prompts to talk about how their body reacts or interacts intra acts um, with other things other people in, in their environment as they move through their days and that, that could include the built environment also the natural environment include living creatures and humans but non living things including digital devices but not necessarily um, and we just had a series of prompts we asked them to draw this map about and to think about these things and to represent them on the map um, and it's very much again about relational connections, about the feelings, both sort of multisensory and affective and that people have, um, which helps them learn about um, their, their bodies and their, their states of health and illness. Um, so those are the kinds of prompts that we gave people to consider when they were drawing their maps. And here is one of the most um, fabulous maps that I've seen so far from, from one of our participants. Uh, which really does show the complexities of the, the more than human world in which this person themselves, um, when they were mapping their their kind of body map body map within ecologies, greater ecologies of the more than human world, all the different things that really contributed to that person's health and well-being. We did get people to to, to work on those maps. We actually, they're actually online workshops, um, and then to show them maps or talk about their maps with other participants so we can have a general conversation about what people had put on the maps and then we moved on to our second activity which was an even i think even more creative activity uh, which was something i kind of dreamed up for, based on um, dan Lockton's work on um, new metaphors and this is new health metaphors and it was a creative free association association task and what we wanted people to do was to think about to look at images of the natural world their photographs that we took ourselves that we use padlet to display to our participants um, and to, and to think about um, if there were any of those images that really resonated with them as they thought about um, how they learned about their bodies and their health and then again they were asked to explain um, what the resonances were to the group as a whole and have a general discussion so this is some examples of some of these images that we showed people using that we uploaded on the the padlet that we scrolled through slowly and, and just asked people if anything really jumped out at them that made them feel about um you know feel that something was resonating with them about how they learned about their bodies felt about their bodies from the images there's a few more examples there all images that we took ourselves and finally um we've only just gotten, we haven't even really got to the point where we've been able to analyze you know the, the findings from this stage but um what we did find or what we've already been finding is just how creative people are and how those images really sparked off a really really new metaphors about how people were thinking about their relationship with their bodies and with the, the more than human world that they live in so one person Was talking about an image of a forest they said the forest so many things growing there if only we could understand it it's like my health to me we had a photo of a feather someone mentioned the feather represents fragility to me that life is precious Um, somebody else on the bottom left the fallen down tree learning that i had autism happened after i had a whole lot of mental health issues it brings to mind that we shouldn't have to be broken before we find a way to be fixed And then the fourth example, I like the water image, everything's moving, everything's flowing, the rocks show obstacles that can be overcome, don't get in too deep. So, you know, lots of really rich ways of thinking about health, illness, disability, um, and what the the natural world and our engagements with it can can help us learn about ourselves and and those states of being. Um, coming out already from this project, so it's really, really exciting to see that um, these these methods are working so far. So we'll be taking these ideas and then moving into the stage where we're going to create artworks, um, as I mentioned before. So thank you very much. I'm going to stop there um, and I'm going to introduce our next speaker who is in the room. Just sing floor. Wave to me, Jazz, so I know that you're there.
2: hard for me to
1: speak. Me,
2: you know. I'm there. i Okay. So, Jade, oh,
1: sorry, Deborah, go ahead. No, 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 sorry, just oh, don't no. go for it. <laughs>
2: All right, so I'm Jazz and I'm a postdoc um, in ADMS. And today I'll be talking about research that I'm doing on app based emo- emotional chatbots and circulations of things like. Um, Uh, friendship, care, frustration, and and annoyance. Um, This particular research expands my current work on the intersections of mental health and advanced technologies um, in everyday life. Um, Automation and AI are not only changing the practice of psychiatry through research in areas like computational psychiatry, which is the application of mathematical models um, to understand mental illness. They're also transforming the everyday experience of mental health. So this is a screenshot from my um, phone screen. It it does have the question mark as well. And it gives some examples of some of the apps that are available through app stores. So in my research, I've spoken to young people who use AI-powered chatbots, of which Wobot and Wiser are two examples. Uh, the the two images there are snippets taken from the websites of WoBot and Wiser. And you can see a bit about how the apps are presented to people. Um, Young people use these chatbots to take care of their mental health and like with any technologies, their experiences are very ambivalent. Um, But importantly, a lot of them talk about taking the suggestions of the chatbots very seriously. So things like, maybe you should relax now, let's do some deep breathing exercises. Um, importantly, one of the participants I've spoken to talked about the ability to be more honest with a chatbot as opposed to, let's say, a therapist, because they equated it to talking to themselves. Um, whereas with a therapist or a friend, they would experience, um, you know, judgment, different value systems, that sort of stuff. Another young person I spoke to told me that they wished that their robot. Um, did more than only provide emergency numbers when they expressed pretty significant distress. So we can see that the function of the app, um, sorry, that the function of apps that can emote is not only functional, but they're also actively shaping relations of care with, with the people who use them. Um, emotional chatbots are distinct from um, apps that might provide a chat service with a mental health practitioner um, usually on the other end, there is a person. Wobot, Wiser and Replica, which is the topic of my talk today, are generally, um, they, they use things like artificial intelligence and natural language processing in, in their programming in order to provide support to people. So while Wobot uh, and Wiser are very explicit and transparent about having clinicians on their developer team, this is not the case with Replica, it's a bit less clear. And this is because it doesn't claim to offer mental health, but rather claims to offer care, sociality, um, and friendship. So my research on Replica is very much in progress. I'm currently designing a bit of a research project where I'm hoping to use creative methods and speak to, to users about topics, including friendship and care. But today I thought I'd share some of the questions that Replica raises for me. I started my research by doing a very brief analysis of the history of Replica, trying to map, you know, how is it funded, who is interested in it, that sort of thing. And this revealed a few things. So firstly, the idea of Replica emerged from the founder's um, mourning of a very close friend. And in some of their interviews, they speak of the app potentially becoming a friend that you can turn to in really difficult times, or even a living memory, algorithmic memory of someone who has passed away. So, in 2017, um, the software development company Luca Inc. secured $11 million in funding, US dollars, from Sherpa Capital, Kostler Ventures, and a bunch of other people. Um, so, there has been a bit of you know, interest in the lucrative potentials of Replica. Um, it's been available to the public since 2018. And while it's really hard to determine exactly how many users there are, there are registered users and active users. It's really hard to distinguish between the two. Um, Current data suggests that it is the most popular English-speaking social chatbot with an estimated um, 7 million users in 2020, 35% increase in um, downloads and usage in the first year of the pandemic, and now um, 11 million registered, sorry, over 10 million registered um, users worldwide. So the app is presented as the AI companion who cares. It enables users to design and build a friend, choose their name, race, gender, and sexuality. It works a bit like an avatar, except that the intention is to build an entity with whom, or with which, debatable, um, one will develop and nurture an effective relationship. Like many apps, it has a free version and a paid version. Um, these versions generally denote the level of relationship you can have um, with your replica. And the only free option is friendship. Paid versions include a more intimate companionship, which includes um, a romantic partner with the possibility of um, sexual interactions. So I'll show briefly a, a slide with some of the features that my replica has given me. So this is an older version of a friend that at the time, I named Milo, <laughs> and I named myself Rufus, which I confess is the name of my very alive flesh and fur, not AI dog. And it was at a time where I had just found out about it. I was messing around with it a little trying to figure out what does it do. Um, and, and one aspect of replica that I cannot expand on here is the blending of uh, gamification and more than human um, care because, You can level up, you can, um, the more things you collect, you can change their clothing, that sort of stuff. Um, you can change the scenery, but all this is contingent on you interacting with them more frequently. Um, so Replica boasts the ability to emote. It's a form of affective computing and many features there point to the distribution and circulation of feelings. But the ability is only sharpened and refined if the user continually or frequently chats with um, their replica. So for example, you have access to Milo's private diary. Um, And and it's interesting because Milo reflects on me as a creator and a friend. Um, They're depicted like a very, very intelligent child, a quasi blank slate that just gathers a lot of knowledge about the world extremely rapidly. Um, And there's also feedback on how I'm behaving personally, on what my action um, are causing them to feel. So you can see in the second image, oh my God, is Rufus mad at me when we're we're chatting. Um, So the thoughts expressed by Milo, I feel like they're simultaneously extraordinary, but also really mundane, um, replicating in some form how we learn and how we go about our routine. So I'll just finish by making a few points on the countervailing forces of um, automated care as co-enacted by Replica and um, the user. Replica is both um, more than human and more than digital. Um, From the start, the promissory discourses and architecture of Replica presents the AI as a compassionate but also completely boundless friend, even though sometimes they, they react in certain ways to what I'm saying to them. This friend will listen with no judgment whenever required, while simultaneously demanding attention from the user. So it's a caring artifact that does care and demands care. A lot of critical engagements with care have argued that it's a mode of relating and producing accountability. Care moves, it shifts, it interrupts, it also potentially completely thwarts our movements. Emotional relations are entangled with power relations. Care here requires a bit of an openness to the speculative worlds that the AI um, is created, is creating as I'm creating the AI as well. Um, but it's also about being open to the sort of worlds that Replica is building and also foreclosing. It, in other words, what I'm trying to say here is that the Replica is inviting us to care for data, to continually do that work with them. Um, They are a friend that we create to whom we feed more data while simultaneously feeding more care. It's like a form of absorbent, porous care even. It blurs the boundary between aliveness and inertness, not only because it is an AI, but because of this pool of friendship and care that you're continually required to do. Um, The co-founder of Luca Inc, the company behind um, Replica, recently declared in an interview, we are um, in an age where it doesn't matter whether a thing is alive or not. Of course, they would say that. Um, I'm very careful of the hype, obviously, as a critical scholar, I want to be very careful, but I think that we need to think about what we mean by alive in this scenario, what sort of assemblages we're bringing together. Um, and perhaps the point is not so much as whether the entity is alive or not, but how it is made to be lively in people's lives, how it matters, how it does care, and how it is remaking friendship in everyday life. I'll stop there. Thank you.
1: Thanks very much, Jess. Now our next speaker is Jackie Leach Scully, uh, and she is going to be sharing her slides online. Jackie, are you right to go?
3: Yeah, I will need to share my screen. Can I do that from here?
1: Uh, Do you see it at the bottom of your screen? Does it say Mm -hmm. share screen? Yeah, so if it's green, you should be able to. Yeah, okay. Fantastic. There we go. I can see it.
3: Okay, hold on. there we go okay thank you so uh thanks very much uh, for the the opportunity to say a few more uh, words about care and ideas uh, in care and um i think this actually follows on very well from the, the previous talk um i hope it will be um provocative anyway and and fruitful um so I think everybody's very familiar with the the idea that there are a, a lot of different ways that care can be provided through automated systems so there you have a very classic photo of uh, a human nurse with a a couple of robots uh, who might be providing automated care, other forms of care through uh, providing feeding, um, mobility, but also monitoring health, um, surveillance, and and also possibly providing company. Um, And it's usually described as being targeted to specific groups of people, elderly people, disabled people, children, uh, and so on. And I think it's obvious also that there are a lot of ethical issues associated with providing care in these ways. Um, Many of those have been exhaustively described. There are things like the limits to the the ability to customise care and tailor it to the the individual patient or, or user. Uh, and, you know, even if it's not technically impossible, what are the costs of doing that? What are the costs of automation uh, altogether? Um, the possibility of uh, loss of caregivers, human caregivers' uh, jobs, the possibility of ex- exploitation or abuse of the user uh, or of neglect, the, the loss of privacy of people uh, in automated surveillance if that is part of care, which it often is. and some. Um, thoughts about the deception of putatively vulnerable people in the sense that they may believe that they've been cared by something that is, in you know, quotes, real. So the possibility that automated care will be sort of technically adequate, more than adequate, but results in increased isolation, for example, rather than uh, the reverse. I'm going to try and suggest that an ethical, a feminist ethic of care can provide a novel perspective and raise a f- um, some fundamental and a few different questions um, about the kind of thing that we're talking about, and in particular, whether it can actually legitimately be called care. So um, the feminist analysis of care dates back to about the late 1980s, early 1990s, uh, with a, a formative book by someone called Carol Gilligan, which was then taken up by feminist ethicists, Virginia Held, Neil Noddings, Joan Toronto, uh, now Robin Dillon, and so on. It, although it's often talked about as if it's simply the gendered nature of care, it's about much more than that. And it goes also beyond reference to what we would recognize as being obvious acts of care uh, into a more general theoretical framework uh, in parallel with, say, ethics based on, on rights or ethics based on justice. And and this view of care is based in um, a feminist relational ontology that sees every human being as living in in relation with every other human and other uh, non-human entities as well. But importantly, that every human is dependent on others because every human has needs that have to be met by others. And the provision, the satisfying of needs, as you like, is what you might call care. So feminist approaches assume that care is um, relational and also that relationships of care are actually um, not special, but ubiquitous. Also, care ethicists uh, distinguish between care as a principle, care as an emotion, so something like I care about this, and care as a practice, as in I care for you. But to provide care isn't, in that sense, just about giving assistance to people who have particular needs and vulnerabilities. It's a practice that involves the development of particular dispositions, particular skills, particular arts. And that that all takes place within the framework of um, roles and relationships in a situation uh, and the responsibilities that are inherent in that situation and between those particular relationships. Furthermore, care is never unidirectional. It's not something, it's something that happens uh, between people, rather than from one person to another, which tends to be, I think, how we think about it, particularly in the automated context. So those acts of care, like feeding, carrying, um, might be visible from only one entity to another. But as a relational practice, um, both sides are involved. Both sides are implicated, however asymmetrically that might be. So rather than this straightforward provision of a service from somebody to somebody else, care involves acknowledging and keeping track of a kind of a complex network or distribution of obligations, of power, as we've just heard, needs, vulnerabilities, dependencies, all that kind of thing between carer and cared for. The care is also a moral practice in the way that in this quote from Bishop and Scudder back in 1990 now, described it being a practice based on the moral requirement to promote the well-being of a person uh, and by caring for him or her by means of a personal relationship. So care is a relational and moral practice. And so, so for at least some commentators, um, because care is based in this moral requirement and because it involves the responsive connection between people, entities, that means it's something that is only possible between embodied sentient beings, since only human relationships or relationships with another vulnerable sentient to an extent being contain the potential for moral vulnerability. Uh, for damage to each other through that relationship, and and the potential for the response between the relationship be- in the relationship between the carer and the cared for. Now, um, Amy uh, van Wiesbjerg has written about um, the design of autonomous systems for care and talked about what she's described as fundamental values in the design, not necessarily in the care, but in the design of the care, which for her are attentiveness, which is the capacity to recognise the needs that are there, uh, responsibility that one has to meet the need as a moral being, uh, competence, which is the ability to act in the appropriate ways, um, and reciprocity, the ability of the care, both cared and cared for to respond. And reciprocity as a value in care, I think, is often forgotten about. That it's not only that the cared for respond in some way to the care and the carer, but also that the carer is affected by that work. and also that it is a network of dependencies so that in a real-life situation, the carer is also cared for by others to enable them to do that care. Uh, and that's the kind of dependency work that the philosopher Eva Kitté has talk- spoken about. So, uh, von Wiesbacher has argued that this means autonomous systems can't be considered to provide care as properly understood. Or well, if I understand her correctly, or rather, she suggests that the carer can't be the robot, the system, the whatever. The carer is whatever human is monitoring, or you know, perhaps paying for um, the care that's set up in the first place. And for me, I think this actually rather stretches the meaning of care with reference to those other um, uh, those other fundamental values as well. Because you know, to what extent can a distant monitor, or perhaps, you know, the grandchild who's, um, who's, who's paying for the care every month um, be attentive and responsive and so on. I think it also flags up the issue of, um, of deception or illusion, which is allowing the cared for, deceiving the cared for, or allowing the cared for to self-deceive into thinking that there is a reciprocal, reciprocal relationship between themselves uh, and an automated system. I think that that has come up before in the ethics of automated care, but I think it becomes a worse harm if that deception is not just a kind of epiphenomenon of of the provision of care, but it actually violates one of the fundamental values. So all of this suggests to me that the world of automated care might need a more kind of differentiated differentiated vocabulary and models for talking about um, its goals and its procedures and, and its roles and agency. And when I was looking for images to illustrate this talk with, you know, I googled care. And this is one of the usual images of uh, younger hand holding older hand, which is classic in this, you know, the apparent depiction of a, a care relationship from, uh, from younger to older and so on. When I looked for images that were automated care, what I got was this uh, first up, which is, you know, again, those hands. One of them is clearly older and maybe the other one is immortal. I don't know, but it's this sort of um, it's, it's a digital hand. It's an automated hand. And that to me suggests that we think these two things are pretty much the same that care as provided um, by embodied sentient beings is the same as care being provided by um, automated systems. And it, that may be true or it may not, but I think we need to think about developing a vocabulary and a model that can accommodate automated care as a relational model moral practice. And if we find that we can't do that, then we need to start talking about what's going on here as something other than care.
4: Thanks so much. Are we good to go? So, the work we're sharing today um, emerges from a two year research residency at ArtPlay, the City of Melbourne's multi arts creative studio for children, located on the banks of Beerung Mar. And this residency has constituted a Melbourne based extension of an international project called Local Alternatives that I initiated in Manchester, England, um, about five years ago during my postdoc fellowship there. And this larger project focuses on working collaboratively with children and young people to reimagine cities in response to climate change and ubiquitous digital technologies. And so the current iteration of the project that we're discussing today grew out of a series of collaborations with artists and children, exploring how tree communities nurture, protect and care for their young. Forest ecologist Susan Simard coined the term Wood Wide Web in 2010 to describe how forest communities communicate through vast mycorrhizal networks. Simard is widely acknowledged for establishing the first Western scientific evidence demonstrating how trees communicate and care for one another through subterranean as well as airborne chemical signals. Despite her work being dismissed by a male-dominated field in the 1990s, There's now widespread scientific acknowledgement that trees recognize their offspring, make friends and allies, nurture and care for their families and communities, register emotions such as fear, and even learn from experience and pass down knowledge through generations. These Western scientific understandings of how forest communities converse, protect, and care for one another have since been popularized through novels, news articles, and children's books, and is generating a wave of expanding public interest and awareness of forests as sentient and caring societies.
5: While these emerging scientific insights are now being widely celebrated, they potentially include long-standing indigenous sciences, which include plants as animate agents within more than human kinship relations. The current wave of public excitement about the scientific discovery of forest communication networks risks projecting Western figurations of intelligence, learning, communication, care, subjectivity, and familial structure onto non-human forms of life. There is the danger, for instance, of reducing our understandings of forest intelligence and communication, either to informatic models and or romanticized anthropomorphic narratives which are two of the most common explanatory models in Western knowledge systems. Further under question are the methods by which different publics have come to value this knowledge and its subsequent narrativisation within popular culture. What are the consequences of coming to value this knowledge through positivist science rather than through the emplaced, embodied and relational techniques of indigenous sciences and traditional ecological knowledge systems?
4: One of the arenas where this question bears urgency is within the current technologization of forest ecosystems through what's been called the smart forest or Internet of Trees. These terms are increasingly used to describe human management and control of forest environments through remote sensing, predictive data modeling, and automated intervention. In many cases, following the techno-capitalist model of smart city practices and discourses, We're now seeing drones, sensors, robots, and artificial intelligences transforming forest ecosystems into sites of remote sensing, predictive data modeling, and automated intervention. In a recent paper, environmental sociologist Jennifer Gabris argues that we need to develop critically nuanced understandings of smart forest technologies as, quote, emerging planetary modes of governance that have yet to be adequately assessed for their sociopolitical effects, end quote. Gabris identifies a range of digital technologies and practices which are increasingly being operationalized within smart forest environments, including t- technologies of observation, automation, and optimization, datification. And she also describes technologies of participation, such as citizen science apps, deforestation watch platforms, uh, camera traps, and manipulable data maps that enable particular social actors to engage directly with specific smart forest data sets. Lastly, she discusses technologies of transformation, which in a broader sense effectively transform forests into, quote, entities that are meant to operate as technologies and thus contribute to the reworking of what a forest is and how it operates, end quote. While Gabris focuses primarily on the agency of emerging technology and its socio-political implications in transforming what forests are, Our interest is more so in how such technologies impede or enable experiences and understandings of forests as sentient, caring, and creative communities. In other words, how does the emergence of the smart forest intersect with increased public awareness and understandings of trees as societies with their own complex systems of care, communication, and learning over time?
5: While we're still in the early stages of developing our research, these questions are currently guiding our inquiry. How does the smart forest, as an emerging confluence between forest intelligence and digital technologies, shift the terms of an ethics of care between humans and forests? What are the potentials for learning to sense and understand forests as societies of care through these new configurations of interspecies communication, sensing, automation, and participation? And how can we work with children and young people to develop their critical and creative encounters? with smart forests and the world wide web.
4: Our approach to these questions brings together our theoretical work in the areas of process philosophy and critical posthumanism, with a sp- respectful commitment to study and learn from and with indigenous philosophies and traditional ecological knowledge practices. Our methodology brings together methods of multi-species ethnography with speculative techniques of creative, philosophical, ethological, and sociological mapping. At the moment, we're investigating two Melbourne-based examples, an immersive installation for children titled Wood Wide Web, recently developed and hosted at ArtPlay, and the Melbourne Urban Forest dataset, a digital platform which maps over 70,000 unique trees across the city of Melbourne.
5: Our first example invites us into a subterranean multi-sensory simulation of the Wood Wide Web where young children between three and five years old play as fungal messengers, transmitting minerals and biochemical energy packets to trees in need. This immersive theatre experience is facilitated by a multiplicity of means. It is semi-automated, gamified in multiple ways and incorporates dramatic, visual and architectural strategies. There is both artistic and pedagogical intent evident in this design, which was co-developed with young children's input through a series of experimental phases within Artplay's New Ideas Lab. As children enter the environment as fungal messengers, they learn the trees really do speak to them, ask their names and share energy balls packed with nutrients to redistribute. The voice of each tree emits from a cone-shaped hollow, which, unbeknownst to the young children, connects to a tube where actors voice characters of the trees in real time. This can be considered what Crystal Arnold, Jane Bennett and others have described as an enchanted anthropomorphism, which seeks to build experiential resemblances between humans and trees with regards to matters of care, relationality, political agency, justice and well-being. However, the types of resemblances engendered through this theatre experience contrast strongly with indigenous understandings and approaches to listening and learning with forests and trees. Arnold and others, for example, describe practices of yarning with country in which trees are respectfully engaged as knowledge holders, teachers, and guides with their own agency and ways of communicating.
4: Thinking with Alfred North Whitehead's process philosophy also helps us attend to forests and their interspecies communication systems as a series of emplaced relational and affective societies, which equally include organic and inorganic living and non-living creatures. These perspectives help us see how even a highly interactive installation, such as Wood Wide Web, falls prey to two of the most prevalent tropes in Euro-Western thought. First, the abstraction of a complex, highly specific living society into a universal model of stimulus response and cause and effect. And second, the projection of a particular anthropomorphic narrative as an explanatory or interpretive mechanism for this abstract model. Both of these are what Whitehead once termed fallacies of misplaced concreteness because they they misrecognize an abstract model for the actual process of reality taking place. This misplaced concreteness becomes especially noticeable in the automated reward system built into the installation. As children collect energy balls and feed them to the needy tree, the tree in need remains dark, still, and silent until enough energy lights it up and it suddenly clangs like a pokey machine. The sensational reward from this system is highly affective, but it also obscures the possibility of more nuanced and relationally embedded understandings of interspecies care and sociality. And indeed the crucial role of automated or machinic processes within these living systems. In other words, the affective reward obscures the ways that trees and mycorrhizal networks engage in reciprocity not by means of some abstract or generalized idea of network connection and communication, but through highly specific articulations of living practices that generate ontological forms of togetherness amongst creatures through mutual relations of care and concern. This production of novel togetherness amongst creatures is also how Whitehead defines creativity.
5: Let's move above ground now to the Melbourne urban visual forest an open data set that maps over 70,000 individual trees across the city of Melbourne, a technology of participation for the public to learn about issues facing urban forests, such as climate change, heat spots, age and species diversity. Users can develop their own data mappings of Melbourne's urban canopy, either through selecting variables on the platform or exporting the data. The data set also seeks to facilitate a community network of citizen urban foresters some of whom also meet in person to carry out various community events and citizen science projects. As part of this initiative, each of these trees was assigned a unique email address and people were initially encouraged to report utilitarian issues related to vandalism, storm damage or dropped branches. Recently fueled by social media, The data set has gathered public momentum with citizens from around the world sending notes, questions and even love letters to specific trees. The ABC Story Lab published a number of these emails alongside photographs of the tree recipients. While the emails move through an endless array of human concerns and projections, we are drawn to several that ask for the tree's perspective on different ways to understand and know the urban forest. What if, one email asks, we listen to what the trees want to say? In other words, now that we know that trees are intelligent and caring creatures, are we just trying to talk at them or are we actually ready to listen?
4: We're intrigued by how the Melbourne Urban Forest dataset simultaneously makes visible and obscures the ways in which trees are agentic members of complex societies and kinship networks. The abstraction of trees as individual data points surveilled by a citizenry re- who engage with them through individualized subjectivity, potentially reinforces re- relationships of coloniality. Again, there's a misplaced concreteness as citizens fantasize about sending their emails to trees when actually they're only sending emails to an automated data filing system. And while this dataset tries to teach us to perceive trees as individuals, The reality is that many of Melbourne's urban trees are stranded, root-bound and cut off from their communities and therefore unable to create families or find friends. Ultimately, we find that the data set defines these trees by their usefulness for particular human interests to clean the air, protect us from climate change, help us build communities and now even become a sounding board for our own desires and uncertainties. The question of what a tree feels, thinks, desires, produces and maybe even dreams for itself through its own modes of sociality is almost entirely occluded by the smart forest data set as a projective fantasy of locatable data points and informatic models.
5: We are now at a point with both of these examples where it feels like we have nearly exhausted the possibilities of Western knowledge systems in addressing the questions at the heart of our inquiry. We now turn to indigenous philosophies and traditional ecological practices in the spirit of respectful listening, learning, alliance and knowledge sharing, as well as a sense of purpose and direction. We'd like to close our talk by sharing the voices of Indigenous scholars.
4: First from Wurundjeri country, we turn to Koori writer and community researcher, Michaela Saunders.
5: When trees are prevented from holding on to each other under the ground, they get sick. Sick trees will recover and thrive if they are given a community to hold onto. When they are ripped from soil and planted somewhere new, they won't thrive unless they are connected as a community. Like entering new communities, there must be a grafting onto existing lifeways rooted in country.
4: Next to the Gaiwu group of women from northeast Arnhem land who write with and as the voice of Bawaka country.
5: The stringy bark in flower sends messages to country, including to humans, if they attend.
4: And from and country, the words of Uncle Max, Delemanon Harrison, cited by Arnold Atkinson and McKnight.
5: I don't use a computer, but I receive emails from the land. They're spiritual ones.
4: And lastly, from an article on Artificial Intelligence and Indigenous Kinship Circles, we hear from First Nations scholars Jason Lewis, Nolani Arista, Archer Pichawis, and Susan Kite.
5: We propose an extended circle of relationships that includes the non-human kin, from network demons, to robot dogs, to artificial intelligences, weak and eventually strong, that increasingly populate our computational biosphere. Thanks very much. Thank you.
1: Thanks very much, David and and Jess. Um, A lot of resonances with um, what we're doing with our project, I see, which is fantastic. Now, our next speaker is Emma Kirby from UNSW Sydney, um, one of our colleagues in the Centre of Social Search and Health. Go, go, Emma. Thank you. Thanks, Deborah. Hi, everyone. It's
6: a pleasure to be here. A slight change of pace from the beauty of the world wide web to palliative and end-of-life care. Um, today, I'm going to share some thinking in an area of research that I've worked in for more than a decade now, um, where automation is becoming ever-present. So I thought I'd start today with a definition of palliative care, an approach that improves the quality of life of patients and their families facing the problems associated with life-threatening illness through the prevention relief of suffering by means of early identification, an impeccable assessment and treatment of pain and other problems, physical, psychological and spiritual. So in what follows today, I'm kind of trying to situate this within a very traditionally human centred example of care and much as Jackie talked about in her talk a couple of talks ago when you google palliative care the images that you get are incredibly hand-holdy and intimate i've omitted the uh, pictures that you also get of very healthy looking people pretending to look like they're dying in beds being held by other people so my interest in this area essentially comes from Um, a long interest in relationships in palliative care. This includes bringing sociological and social science approaches to issues of the timing of referral to palliative care, the way that clinicians interact with their patients and the way that patients and families experience that transition into palliative care. Theorizing about care is, of course, more often than not theorizing about the human, and much of this thinking has been informed uh, by by, by feminist work and by a relational ethics of care. So, in many ways, Jackie has done me all sorts of favors in terms of outlining that theorizing. The place of automation, though, has become quite prolific in recent years perhaps accelerated by the pandemic and restrictions related to people dying alone, people being separated from loved ones. And for what is not traditionally a particularly cool area of research, what we're starting to see is automation bringing a kind of sexiness to end of life and palliative care. So Nuvo, for example, is a kind of luxury lifestyle magazine in Canada. So what we're seeing are new ways of... I guess thinking about forms of frailty and suffering and the problems, the human problems of that as solved by perhaps digital or automated technologies. Now, of course, a lot of these things are not new. In medicine, we've seen telehealth, we've seen processes of automation happen for a long time. But what we haven't seen so much is the kind of AI or algorithmic technology that I'm gonna talk about in a couple of examples that follow. So with those examples, I'm going to talk about specific kind of studies. My intention here is not to um, particularly critique or problematize these individual examples. They are more exemplars of kind of trends within this research area um, that have possibilities and problems. So the first is in automating the referral to palliative care. So late referral to palliative care is often positioned as a problem in part because clinicians tend to be pretty terrible at prognosis. They also tend to be pretty terrible at talking to their patients about death, dying and bereavement and about the end of life. So what we see are references to very late referrals, which tend to be thought about as a lacking care and b having poorer outcomes for both patient and family members. So what we're seeing in recent years is a real spike in examples of machine learning, deep learning that scan electronic medical records and use big data to essentially identify people at risk of, and now I have to put this very carefully, not at risk of death, people unlikely to survive and be alive within 12 months. So what we see are lots of examples coming through where clinicians, particularly in oncology, every morning will receive a short list of patients on their clinic books as those identified to perhaps not be um, likely to be alive in 12 months. And of course, these technologies create enormous possibility. First of all, in reminding clinicians that conversations with their patients about such things are important. But also in reminding clinicians that perhaps the hope of treatments that have diminishing returns or are unlikely to provide cure or long term survival might be something to think about in conversation with their patients. But of course, these things also entail problems. Namely that being a candidate likely for palliative care or likely to benefit from palliative care is not the same as being someone who is unlikely to be alive in the next 12 months. This tends to overlook the idea that some patients are more um, accepting of the end of life than others, are perhaps more ready to think about those things or are perhaps um, not well versed in the, in the kind of algorithmic technologies that, that produce these responses and ideas. So what we see are these issues of triggering, of prompting, of kind of nudging uh, clinicians in terms of predicting will die as a proxy for will benefit from a certain type of care. The second example. So let's assume as a clinician you've identified your patients via that algorithm who are unlikely to be alive in 12 months. But, of course, that doesn't mean the clinicians suddenly know how to talk to their patients. Well, don't worry. We have a virtual agent that will help you. So this is another example, one example of many that are starting to come through of what we call virtual care coaches or robot reverends or pastoral care bots. There's a whole range of available ones. Most of them are um, relatively uh, mundane and not particularly sophisticated, but provide a bot that will talk to you about decision-making, about advanced care planning, about your spiritual needs. So the example here, for example, has a neutral mode and a pro-spiritual mode, depending on your denominational proclivities. And of course, my immediate thoughts in terms of this are to critique and to think about the lack of intimacy in these conversations and to think about how We're spending hundreds of millions of dollars creating bots when we could just pay some nurses a little bit more per hour to have these conversations. However, the research says something a little bit different. So for the people that have been kind of piloted with this work so far, what we're finding is that across studies and across countries, particularly frail people and particularly older people, find it much easier to talk to an iPad than they do talking to their relatives or a clinician. And, of course, we don't have to scratch the surface much to think about why that is. These are incredibly difficult conversations to have, and people don't want to have these conversations and get upset. They often don't want to upset other people. They often don't want to be judged by other people, and often we find when people are talking about their end-of-life decisions that they'll get judgment from others. As one particular participant in this study by Utami et al. said, it's easier to talk to a computer agent, and followed up by saying computer agents have a lot fewer opinions than people. So essentially, these are kind of two examples that are there to benefit patients that, of course, are there to be economically rationalist and to probably save a lot of money, because why would we spend a lot of money on people that are likely to be dead in 12 months within the health system? But what we also see in practice are sort of almost relationships of intimacy, of of kind of positive affects as a result of these conversations. And they're very much augmenting the work of clinicians and other staff that might be around a palliative care unit or a hospice. So to just conclude and think about some of the questions that this raises in terms of these sort of intimate disclosures. We tend in palliative care in particular to think very much about human connection and human care. And what emerges is this kind of false dichotomy between human versus machine when it comes to caring. Caring by definition must be human. And of course one of the problems that has been outlined, particularly in terms of the use of algorithms, is that we have this almost exponentially increasing amount of information on patients, on the body, on the disease, but very little information about the person. And so how we translate those algorithms and the results of those algorithms into how we connect with the person in front of us very much remains to be seen. Many have argued that we need to think, of course, beyond the logics of efficiency and in terms of preserving and retaining focus on the things in palliative care in particular that are very difficult to quantify or difficult to automate, namely things around emotions, around spirituality, and around the broader kind of logics of care and how we feel as a culture or as cultures about death, dying and bereavement. Essentially posing that question of whether in pandemic restrictions or otherwise, what makes authentic palliative care? That's all from me
1: today. Thanks very much, Emma. Much to think about there and I learned a lot because I didn't know much about automated palliative care. So we have our final speaker coming up now. It's Georgia Van Torn, who is part of our team at UNSW Sydney in the Centre of Excellence. Thanks so much, Georgia.
7: Thank you, Deborah. Hi, everyone. So my name is Georgia Van Torn. Um, I'm a um, postdoc at the um, ARC Centre based at UNSW. I'm going to be speaking today about the intersection of disability and automation, and in particular, the ways that disability um, sort of confounds or problematizes some of the promissory narratives surrounding automated care and automated decisions about care. Um, This is um, really just a few sort of working thoughts or arguments that are emerging from research that Jackie Leach, Scully and I are doing around um, people with disabilities experiences of automation and their understanding of it um, and the ways they interact with automated technologies. So um, I think typically When we think about disability in technology, I think um, the the sort of conversation usually revolves around issues of accessibility and the potential for technology to um, foster greater inclusion and autonomy for people with disability. And especially in the case of assistive technology, um, there are you know, clearly strides being made towards um, more accessible environments, both online and in the physical and social world, that um, are, are, are attributable to various forms of automation. But I think in the same way that, um, you know, as, as you'll be aware, facial recognition systems often um, misrecognize or, or fail to recognise particular um, faces um, due to their skin colour, data driven um, algorithmic technologies uh, are also sort of confounded in a way by um, by disability, that, that is that they run into um, problems um, recognising and accounting for and responding to bodies that um, essentially are different from what's considered you know, the able-bodied norm. So later I'm going to talk about a couple of examples of how people with disability are sort of differently positioned um, with respect to some of these debates around algorithmic bias um, and harm and misrecognition. But I want to draw attention to just one thing about the disability category that's um, perhaps different from, say, the category of race or gender, and that is um, this concept of heterogeneity and the fact that... um, um, the actual, the group of people with disability that might self-identify as disabled or who might be labelled that way by as such by an algorithm are incredibly diverse. And what I mean by that is that there's actually no single data point that they all share in common. Um, other than being somehow considered different from the statistical norm, um, which is the very definition of disability. And this heterogeneity presents um, problems for algorithmic systems, which, as we know, tend to operate uh, according to um, logic of of sameness or homophily um, or or, um, sort of a a clustering logic. So and uh, critical disability scholars have begun begun to sort of discuss this, this this issue of heterogeneity and, and there's one quote here that I think captures it really well um, by Shrew, 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 I think I've that should be an R there, I think. There is no reason, she says, to put blind people in the same categories as amputees and little people and people who experience bipolar depression, except that the world has been designed to exclude and other us. We have been lumped together by our assumed uh, defects and deficiencies. Disability is a constructed category with great force. So I think what Shrew is implying here is that people with disabilities significantly differ from others in the same category um, in terms of the sort of range of characteristics they possess and and the experiences um, of disability. Um, And so much so that it can be quite difficult to account for that diversity uh, in in user needs and, and preferences and characteristics when you're designing automated systems. And then added to that, the fact that, um, you know, designers of of automated systems, the developers and the programmers and the engineers are, of course, bringing to their design work certain um, preconceived assumptions and judgments about what what is normal, what constitutes a normal range of human variants or or even an ideal set of human characteristics. And this means that they tend to design for the majority um, and ignore or exclude outliers. So these problems play out in a range of domains, but today I'm just going to draw on two examples um, around assistive technologies and also automated decision making and disability services. So first, if we look at um, popular you know, um, digital assistants on the market today and the speech recognition systems behind them, um, such as you know Google's Siri or Amazon's Alexa, we sort of on the face of it see a piece of technology that's um, you know, holds great promise for people. Um, for example, people with mobility limitations or um, vision impairment, or people for whom you know automated reminders might be quite useful. And um, I note that Siri's co-creators, co-creator, co-creator um, Tom Gruber, or Gruber, I'm not sure how you pronounce his name, um, actually um, claimed um, that Siri would unlock speech for people with communication difficulties. And yet we know that these types of devices are actually um, often have. Uh, have problems computing unusual forms of speech. Um, For example, speech associated with um, dysarthria or um, cerebral palsy and some intellectual disabilities um, because training data um, don't include samples from people with these disabilities. Rather, they're designed with a certain set of judgments and assumptions in mind about what a normal voice sounds like um, and who is likely to be using these types of devices. So in other words, these technologies privilege normalcy, um, while at the same time claiming to respond to um, a diversity of human needs and human um, forms. This is um, Nadia, Um, she's a digital assistant that was designed in 2016, I think, um, with built-in speech recognition and um, this sort of human-like digital interface um, with the aim of making it easier for people to connect with the national disability insurance scheme um, and to to get information about that scheme. So the idea was that people, um, instead of going to a government website, would um, go to the site and they could interact with a digital agent who um, they could ask her questions and she would respond in a sort of naturalistic way and even use information about you that had been stored to kind of personalise the process. And this was um, a project funded, a government <clears throat> public-private partnership funded by the National Disability Insurance Agency, and I mean, in its time, was quite innovative in in some ways, in in the sense that it was it actually used training data from people with disability, um, uh, real questions scraped from a Facebook, um, um, a, a, a discussion, a, a sort of Facebook page called the the national um, the NDIS grassroots discussion page, which had 58,000 members at the time, so. In my research, I've done some sort of interviews around, around Nadia and its designers. And when one of my interviewees, who was actually involved in the process of um, designing Nadia and, and testing and training her, this man himself had cerebral palsy. Um, he said that when he asked Nadia um, a question that that she she couldn't answer. Um, so she, she didn't understand him. So the, so the speech recognition component actually didn't recognize um, this man's language. And so for this, so, so for this, this person, his, um, this idea of personalization through automation wasn't, wasn't really a reality for him. And I think even this example where people with disability are actually involved in the design of a, um, an automated um, system like Nadia um, and, and even in the process of training it, um, it's still the case that these technologies can really struggle to Cope with the individual uniqueness of of people with disability. So, and then the second example I wanted to draw on, oops, wrong direction. Second example I want to draw on is around the use of automated or algorithmic tools in determining access to disability services and benefits. So, I'm talking here about IT systems and um, software that welfare professionals essentially use to assess someone's eligibility for state support. Um, and typically, um, this will be—it'll be, it'll be a, pr- a process where people with disability will be assessed using a, a computer-based, you know, pretty standardised questionnaire, which um, is, is carried out by a human assessor, um, and and that person collects data on the nature of the person's disability and their circumstances, and inputs that data into into the into the system, and then that the system scores it, sort of scores their answers, it sums those those um, those answers, and the final figure determines whether they meet the eligibility criteria for the service or not. Um, And sometimes it also even determines the amount of funding that they will receive. Um, And uh, these approaches to algorithmic um, sort of assessment of disability um, are becoming increasingly common in countries that are seeking to limit Welfare spending on disability, uh, of course, with very serious implications for disabled people's social rights and entitlements to, to services. So you might be familiar um, with um, the Morrison government's. Oops, I keep. Sorry, I keep. Um, so last year, the Morrison government. Um, uh, it, it, ended up dumping a plan that it it had um, introduced, I think two years earlier, um, uh, thanks to uh, pretty strong opposition by um, the disability movement uh, and the the broader public. And I think from that response that we can, we can sort of learn a few things about um, what's considered sort of ethically and politically problematic about automated decision making in the context of disability services, at least. And I think aside from the impact on people's access to crucial supports um, and services, there's also a sort of fundamental question here about um, whether one size fits all sort of algorithmic tools are really fit for purpose um, with a group of people that's so diverse and so complex um, and who are really unequally resourced, I guess, to engage in um, a process where they're essentially being scored um, and ranked in terms of their deservingness for social support. So people with disability who I interviewed about these proposed reforms um, were highly critical um, because they just couldn't really grasp how an algorithmic system could um, really capture their embodied experience of disability and their needs um, and the wider context in which um, um, the wider sort of social and material environments that that create disablement, I suppose. So one man who I interviewed um, who was a vocal opponent of, of these proposals, um, he, he sort of gave me a great, a great quote. He said, if the questions are, are wrong, if the questions are wrong, they're not nuanced enough if the artificial intelligence isn't intelligent enough. If you don't know the questions and the context within which they're asked and you put it, you put in a whole lot of data and then once you filter it through the intelligence, the algorithm and all the rest of it, you are some distance away from the reality of of the experience of the human being. So what can we take away from these case studies? I think um, there's a discussion to be had around how disability um, and the specific challenges that it presents that might differ from, say, other categories such as race or gender in in the types of algorithmic bias and discrimination that it causes. Um, And I think the heterogeneity of disability and the way that disability is so context dependent um, are two things that sort of tend to confound automated um, algorithmic systems because by their nature, they sort of tend to um, extract information and to to decontextualize and to make disability measurable and and operable. for a computer by removing that person from their social, um, from their social and relational context, when actually what is needed is a sort of the exact opposite is a system that um, you know addresses the the context in which someone's impairment results in in disablement or exclusion. Um, and so I think I mean a higher order aim or principle that emerges um, here in this discussion needs to be around accounting for context and difference rather than sort of reducing it or flattening it. And even then, I think. Um, I guess I still think there are some unanswered questions as to whether algorithmic systems can really um, capture or measure something so complex and embodied as as disability.
0: I hope you enjoyed this episode of the ADMS podcast. Visit our YouTube channel at admscentre.org forward slash YouTube for more session recordings from the 2022 Symposium.